Let us pray. I'm also eternal and everlasting Father, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Thank you for this evening, for the privilege that we have together to study a portion of your word. We know that we're living in a time where there is so much confusion, but you have assured us that the stability of our time is your word. So we gather to study a portion of it. We realize that the human mind is incapable of understanding anything that is spiritual apart from the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So it's a request that the Holy Spirit will enable us to hear precisely what you have for us this evening. This is a request in Christ's name. Amen. We move to Exodus chapter 14, verses 23 through 25. Exodus chapter 14, verses 23 through 25. It reads, the Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Now the verses before us are indeed the seventh subsection of the major theme of Exodus chapter 14 verses 5 through 31 that is concerned with the destruction of the Egyptian army. Now the sixth subsection that covers verses 21 and, and 22 uh, uh, focus on the Lord's action in favor of the Israelites. Now this favorable action of the Lord is the dividing of the Red Sea, so that the Israelites cross on a dry land in the midst of the sea. That is, they were surrounded by walls of water on either side of their path of travel. But our present passage focuses on God's action directed towards the Egyptians. Thus, the section that we are about to consider concerns then God's action that caused the Egyptians to recognize that Israel's God was defending them. In effect, we can say that the central proposition of the passage is that the Egyptians pursued the Israelites, but God acted on their behalf, causing the, Israel, uh, the Egyptians to recognize their God, the, the God of the Israelites, as the supreme uh, God who fights for them. So the passage before us then is really concerned with three uh, elements that summarize it. The first is the Egyptian pursuit of the Israelites in Exodus chapter 14 verses 23 through the first part of verse 24. Now this implies as it is already revealed in the beginning portion of Exodus, that the Egyptians were enemies of the Israelites. The second element is God's action directed to the Egyptians, described in the beginning from the second half of verse 24 to the first part of verse 25. Now this element conveys a sense of God's care, and concern for his covenant people. The thought is the response of the Egyptian army described in the last half of verse 25. Now this, the response is one that comes from those who know that Israel's God is different from their gods. They learned that. So based on the three elements, 
And the central proposition of the passage will then drive a message we believe the Holy Spirit wants the church of Christ to get. This message is this. The church of Christ should not be afraid of the activities of her enemies because God will fight for her in such a way that her enemies may recognize it. So the message that we have given is really based on the fact that Israel in our context is a beneficiary of God's actions against the Egyptians. See, Israel is in a covenant relationship with God and as his unique people in the Old Testament times. However, the church now is in a new covenant relationship with God in Christ, of course, at the present time. Now, Israel was traveling to the land the Lord promised to their ancestors and so to them, just as the church of Christ is traveling towards heaven. Now that's what we're saying, that as Israel was marching to the promised land, so is the church marching towards heaven to claim the promised home that the Lord Jesus promised his disciples in John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. John chapter 14, verse 2, beginning of verse 2 reads, In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare you a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Now, our human mind, of course, at this point can't even begin to imagine. We only say we are traveling. We are now on our way to what the Lord promised here. He has been out of this planet over 2,000 years. He is not back yet. Because he says, when he finishes, now he is God, the creator who spoke just once, everything came into existence. So for him to have been gone for that many years and he's not back, you must be certain that whatever he is preparing for us is something that's no way we can even imagine it on this planet. Impossible. But that's what we're traveling to. We're moving close to that. Does it is appropriate then? To take a message derived from God's dealing with Israel and apply it to the church of Christ in this specific case. The church of Christ consists of individual believers so that each believer can apply the general message personally. In other words, you should not be afraid of those who hate you because you're a believer in Christ. Since God will fight for you in such a way that your detractors will come to acknowledge that your Lord is with you. Now this of course is premised though on you living obediently to God's word. So the point we want to emphasize is that as we consider the message to the church that you being a part of the church should personalize it or apply the details that we consider to your situation if you are facing any hostility because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Again, let me state the message of this section. It is that the church of Christ should not be afraid of the activities of her enemies because God will fight for her in such a way that her enemies may recognize it. Now we will expand on this message using two 
propositions. A first proposition is that the enemy of the church may come after her with all their might. But God will act on behalf of her. Now there are two parts to this proposition really that are related. The first is that the enemy of the church may come after her with all their might. With all their might. Now this first part of the proposition is based on the first sentence of Exodus chapter 14 verse 23 that we're studying. Look at the first sentence. It says, the Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen. Now this sentence describes what followed and results from the dividing of the Red Sea and Israel going through it on a dry ground. Now this is because the Hebrew uh, of this line begins with a Hebrew particle that's often translated and in our English versions. But here it is not translated in the NIV and in majority of our English versions. Now the Hebrew particle has several other usages. For example, it may be used to indicate that what follows is sequential to what preceded it. So it may be translated something like then or and then. Now it may also be used to introduce results from what preceded in that case, it may mean something like so or therefore. Not so and therefore. So, either so or therefore. Now, in our passage, it is used to indicate that verse 23 describes not only the result of dividing of the Red Sea and Israel passing through it in a dry ground, but also that it describes that which is sequential to what preceded it. Now it is probably this interpretation that is reflected in a handful of our English versions, such as the New American Standard Bible or and the New Century Version that began verse 23 with the word then. That's how they began verse 23 with the word then. Of course, it's often difficult to understand what the translators mean when they begin a verse in the Old Testament uh, with the word then, because we know that the word then can mean either next or at that time or therefore. So it's not always clear how they use it. Nonetheless, we contend that the Hebrew particle is used in verse 23 to convey the sequence to what preceded and result from what Preceded. Now the action of the Egyptians that follows uh, sequentially to Israel passing through the Red Sea uh, on dry ground and results from Israel's action is their pursuit of the Israelite as in the sentence where they say the Egyptians pursued them. Now the word pursuit is translated from a Hebrew word that may mean to follow in the sense of to act according to an instruction as the word is used to convey to Israel that justice or treating people fairly is an essential element of their surviving in the promised land or to keep them living in it. Now many times I've told, said that uh, the church, the Christian church, they don't talk much about justice these days. Yet, that is the foundation of any surviving nation. There has to be. That is the thing that you can't get away with. If you don't ignore it, you pay for it. This is what God told Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 20. Deuteronomy, hold on to Deuteronomy because the next. Our passage will also be in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 20. It says, Follow justice, and justice 
alone. He has the reason, he tells him, so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is given you. Here follow is a Hebrew word that's translated pursue in the passage we're studying in Exodus 14, verse 23. Now the Hebrew word may also mean may mean to persecute, to persecute, as the word is used to describe what God will do to Israel's enemies that will persecute them for sure in Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 7. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 7. It reads, The Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies who hate and persecute you. That word persecute you is translated from our Hebrew word that's translated here, pursued. Now the word also may mean then to pursue, as it is used to describe Israel's enemy, or what Israel's enemy will do to them, if they fail to keep the terms of their covenant with the Lord. God has given Israel instructions. God says, if you don't follow them, this is what's going to happen to you. And part of it is what is given in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 17. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 17. He reads, I will set my face against you, so you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you, and you will flee even when no one is pursuing you. That's a Hebrew word translated here, pursuing. Now in our passage though, of Exodus 14 verse 23, the word is used with the meaning to pursue in the sense of chasing after someone with a hostile intent. You can pursue somebody and not be for a hostile intent, but this one it is for hostile intent. So the pursuit of Israelites by, in this case, is by the military machinery or might or military might of Egypt. Described in the phrase of Exodus 14 verse 23 that we are studying. Where it says, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen. Now on a surface reading, it might appear that only horses and their riders and chariots were involved in the pursuit of Israel. But that is not really the case. It is the entire military machinery of the Egyptians that constituted of the infantry, cavalry, charioteers, that is the soldiers on wagons uh, driven by horses. These are the people that pursued Israel. Now we are sure of this because when the Lord announced Moses that the Egyptians will be in hot pursuit of the Israelites, the infantry, that is, foot soldiers, was included, as we read in Exodus chapter 14, verse 17. Uh, usually, uh, the infantry is really the backbone of any military, because they are the ones that move on the ground, capture, and hold. So here... This is what God told Moses, in a sense, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all, look at that one, his army. That's really mostly the infantry. Through his chariots and his horsemen. 
So that word army is more or less used for the infantry. Now furthermore, the Egyptian army uh, mentioned in verse 24 that in our context refers to foot soldiers, charioteers and cavalry. Now if foot soldiers were involved in the Egyptians' pursuit of the Israelites, one may then wonder why the army was not mentioned in verse 23 that we're looking at. Now there are two possible, there are two reasonable way or explanation of its omission. The Holy Spirit wants the reader to remember that the army was included by referencing what was given in verse 17 as we did or by noting the mention of the army in verse 24 of the current passage we're studying. Now another possible reason is that the Holy Spirit wanted to focus attention not so much on the foot soldiers but on the cavalry and charioteers because of God's action that is described in verse 25 that where we're studying Exodus 14 concerning the chariots of Egyptians because that's what was focused. That may be another reason the army or the infantry was not mentioned. So anyway, to ensure we understand the pursuit of the Israelite by the Egyptians was relentless. We have a description or an explanation of the extent of the pursuit of the of the Israelites in the last verbal phrase of Exodus 14 verse 23. Look at that. It says, followed, followed, that this verbal phrase, followed them into the sea. Literally, the Hebrew simply says, and they came after them into the middle of the sea. Now, it is true that the translators of the NIV omitted the conjunction and that we use in the literal translation. But the Hebrew particle that we literally translated and has other usages, as we mentioned before. But in the verbal phrase or the literal clause that we're considering, it is used as a marker of explanation. In other words, the verbal phrase, follow them into the sea, is used to explain what is meant by the pursuit of the Israelites by the Egyptians. So, we're told, they went after the Israelites hard, so that they continued their pursuit into the middle of the sea. Now you see, the word followed of the NIV is translated this time from a different Hebrew word that, that has a range of meanings. The word, the Hebrew word may mean to attack, to attack. As it is used to describe the action of Simeon and Levi in killing the people of Shechem, or Shechem for the rape of their sister, Dena. As we read in Genesis chapter 34 verse 25. Genesis chapter 34 verse 25. Genesis chapter 34 verse 24 reads, I mean 25, 34-25 reads, Three days later, while all of them were still in pain, pain of, you know, he, they, he, they wanted, Shechem uh, wanted to marry Dennis so badly, he said, oh, well, if you want to marry uh, sister, you have to be circumcised. We don't, if you're circumcised, you can do that. And so it is why they were, they actually went through the circumcision. And so when he said they were still in pain, that is the pain of being circumcised. So he said, why did all of them were still in pain? Two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, uh, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. Now the word may, may mean to approach, as in the description of the movement of Ehud before he killed Eglon, the king of Moab, as we read in Judges chapter 3 verse 20. 
Judges. Chapter 3, verse 20. He reads, Ehud then approached. That's a Hebrew word here, it's translated approach. Same Hebrew word, translated followed by here, it's translated approached. Approached him while he was sitting, down, um, sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose, from his seat. Now the word may mean to follow as it is used though to describe what Phinehas did to calm God's anger against Israel when he killed a man involved in sexual immorality with a Moabite woman that was so present so to say and there to bring the woman into the camp of Israel. And so, we have Phinehas going, killing the man for doing that, according to Numbers, chapter 25, verse 8. Numbers, chapter 25, verse 8. It is, and followed the Israelites into the tent. He drove despair through both of them, threw the Israelites into the woman's body. Then the plague against the Israelites was stopped. In other words, uh, God saw in his plan what Phinehas realized it was an awful thing. Not only did Israel commit sexual immorality and got involved in idolatry, but then to take a person considered unclean and bring them into the camp of Israel and also to have sex with the person there. And that's why Phinehas went and killed him. And that was, that's what we see here. He said, God then was pleased. And the plague was stopped. Now, Hebrew word is followed really by another Hebrew word that as an adverb may mean behind. As in the location of the angel of God that guided and protected Israel during the pursuit of the Egyptians. As we read in Exodus chapter 14 verse 19. Exodus chapter 14 verse 19 It is then the angel of God who had been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind went behind them the pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them. So a Hebrew word here is all translated behind. Now when the Hebrew word is also used as a preposition, instead of as an adverb, it may mean after, after, in connection with a place or time, as it is used in the Lord's announcement of miracles he will perform in Egypt, that will force the hands of Pharaoh to free Israel from bondage. As that's the way the word is used in Exodus chapter 3 verse 20. Exodus chapter 3 verse 20. It is so, I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After, that's a Hebrew uh, word here, it's not trans- After that, he will let them, or he will let you go. 
Now in our passage of Exodus chapter 14 verse 23, the Hebrew word is used as a preposition with the meaning after. So the explanation that we have regarding the pursuit of the Israelites by the Egyptians is that they came after them by following the same path of dry ground on the seabed that the Lord had prepared for his people or his confident people to travel through. Remember last week we saw what a wonderful thing that the Lord did, the miracle of dividing the sea. We have a wall on both sides and Israel had to pass through dry land and that's exactly that part is what these Egyptians were following. That this is really the essence of the phrase of Exodus uh, 14 verse 23 when he said, into the sea or more literally into the middle of the sea. Now the, so the literal translation makes it clear or clearer that the Egyptians followed the path of Israel's travel since the Israelites were described in verse 22 in the literal Hebrew as traveling through the middle of the sea. Now that aside, the point is that the Egyptians, because of their determination to go after the Israelites, entered the middle of the sea as the Israelites did. That the pursuit of the Israelites by the Egyptians to the middle of the sea is an indication of thoughtlessness on their path. See, Israel trusted their God and he made a way for them. But the Egyptians have no relationship with the supreme God of the universe. They don't have any kind of relationship, anything like Israel has. Nothing. That means by them going in after them, they lost all power of reason at this point because of their hatred of the Israelites. What I'm saying is, it didn't occur to them that they were venturing into the sea on a dry land. It didn't occur to them. They saw this, okay, but they don't realize they are not in the same relationship with God as the people that they are pursuing. Of course, their uh, bold move was because God had determined to destroy them. So, God acted in, in them in such a way that they were not thinking of what they were doing by pursuing Israel into the middle of the sea. There's no doubt in my mind that a whole lot of time, if God wants to actually bring judgment on a person, they don't think. You can reason all you want, you can explain anything you want, they are not listening to you. That's what we have here. They are not thinking. Now if they were thinking, they say, what a minute now, this sea that divided, are we sure? We should we go in? Now? Now, here is really what I'm, what I'm getting to do is this. Their hatred is what is driving them. So again, all I want to emphasize is that hatred causes us to lose all sense of reasoning. If you get into hate, you lose all senses of reasoning. You can never hate and reason. This is why if people hate you, you can explain all the truth on the planet you want to. They are not listening to you. Just know that. I know, you know many times we, you know, we don't realize that, yes, that's why people are in such a turmoil. Is their soul is so filled with hatred. So you can reason, give them you know, convincing truth from the scripture, for example. They're not listening. So they don't even try. That's the point because of what hatred does. This is why that every believer has to be careful that there's not one person on this planet that you hate. Not one. Because if you do, you lose your sense of reasoning. Beside, 
you are also walking in darkness, and at the same time, you are causing or calling for some judgment upon you. But here, for the Egyptians, they're going to catch it because of the hatred. Of course, God determined that they must perish, but their hatred is what closed their eyes, and they didn't realize what they were doing until, as we're going to see, it was too late. So, in any case, the sentence of Exodus 14, verse 23. When he said, the Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. That sentence is the basis of the first part of the first proposition that enables us to apply then our uh, passage to the church of Christ. Now recall that the first part of the proposition is that the enemy of the church may come after her with all their might. Now this truth that I have stated, that the enemy of the church may come after her with all their might, is well documented in the scripture. And I'm going to march through to show you clearly how this happened to be the case. Now the first indication of the persecution of the church of Christ by ruling authorities is the attempt of the Jewish religious leaders to silence the apostles from preaching the gospel as we read in Acts chapter 4 verse 18. Acts chapter 4 verse 18. Now you hold on to Acts, because we're just going through Acts, a series of passages in Acts. Acts chapter 4, let's begin with verse 18 first. Verse 18 reads, Then they called them in again, and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. In other words, there's a conflict. Jesus said, go preach, teach me, preach me everywhere. And they will say, no, you don't do that. Because we know they defy them because that's what they're supposed to do anyway. Now it is this persecution of the church in the sense of attempting to silence the preaching of the gospel that led to the prayer of the church and its answer as recorded still in that Acts chapter 4. Let's look at verses 23 through 31. Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, You made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand. And the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should, be, should happen. In other words, yes, they crucified the Lord Jesus Christ because that was exactly God's plan. Now Jesus knew because he was part of the plan. He knew exactly what he was getting into. But he left heaven because he wants to come to this planet for you and me. So he says, verse 29, Now, now Lord, consider their threats. And enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. 
stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Although the Greek really say filled of the Holy of this Holy Spirit. They said filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Now following the death of Stephen, the first martyr of, of the church. The church came under persecution as reported in Acts chapter 8 verses 1 through 3. Acts chapter 8 verses 1 through 3. It is, And Saul was there giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. So believers were imprisoned. As indicated, but the father Saul himself obtained permission to imprison believers, as we read in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. It reads, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the lost disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now that's part of the persecution. Paul himself, at that point, Saul, we're using his uh, Jewish name more than the Gentile name. Uh, so he was relentless. He did not like the fact that there were people preaching Christ. He didn't like it one bit. And so he was at the forefront of all those who were persecuting the church. Now, after that wave of persecution of the church that Saul was at the forefront came another persecution of, by Herod who killed James, uh, James, the apostle James and attempted to kill Peter as we recorded in Acts chapter 12 verses 1 through 6. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. It is, it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. Now this happened during the feast of the unleavened bread. Now after arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to, the God, uh, to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. 
Think about it. Just one prisoner. Almost 16 people guarding the, just one prisoner. Because he was determined he wasn't going to escape so that he can bring, hand them over to the uh, Jewish people or do what he did with uh, James. Anyway, so it says, verse 5 says, So Peter, um, uh, sorry, uh, it says, Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison. But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Now, remember what we're looking at is the church. Your enemy may, the enemy of the church may go after it with all his might. But God may do something and act in such a way that you'll be clear. So I'm not going to read the rest, but if you go home, you read it, you find that, yes, Peter was rescued miraculously in spite of the squad, the four squads holding a vigil, more or less, or whatever they were doing, just to ensure that this man didn't escape, but didn't do anything because God did what he wants to do. Now, as the gospel was preached, moving from Jerusalem, from Judea, as the gospel was preached to the Gentiles, persecution came to believers. Paul himself, after he got saved, and the Lord told him, the spiritual law of sowing and reaping is going to apply to you, because he told Ananias, he said, ah, this man, I've chosen him, and he's going to suffer much for my name. That is, what he did is going to come back to him. And so, the first, one of the first evidence of that is him being stoned to death while he was preaching the gospel, as we read in Acts chapter 14, verse 19. Acts Chapter 14, verse 19. It reads, Acts chapter 14, verse 19 reads, Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. So, that's his first test. This, during his second missionary journey, he was beaten and imprisoned, as we read in Acts chapter 16, verses 22 and 23. Acts chapter 16, verses 22 and 23. It is the crowd joined in in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Because again. God in a, a miraculously delivered him and also because it was God's plan for the jailer himself to be saved. Now apparently, anyone that was then a Christian was persecuted. You take for example, take the example of uh, Sustenus as recorded in Acts chapter 18 verse 17. Acts chapter 18 verse 17 reads Then they all turned on sustenance the synagogue ruler and beat him in front of the court but Gallo showed no concern whatsoever. The human author of Hebrews makes clear that the church was persecuted 
As we read, for example, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. It reads, Remember those earlier days after you had received the light. That's after they got saved. When you stood your ground in a great context in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So here, the uh, human author Hebrew tells us or summarizes some of the persecutions of the early church. Does then we can see that the pages of the New Testament indicate that the church was persecuted by the ruling authorities deploying all their might against her. Now we have really considered the persecution of the church recorded in the New Testament scripture. But the pages really of human history since the first century of the church history records many examples of the persecution of the church by her enemies. Now, emperor worship that the church refused to engage led to several periods of persecution directed by the various Roman emperors because the Christians would not accept that there's any other law that is Lord Jesus Christ. And so, they went through the Roman empires a series of persecutions. In fact, we know that in effect the church was persecuted by emperors Nero, Domitian, Trajan, Marcus Aurelius, Septimus, Severus, Maximus, Decius, Valerian, Aurelian, and Cletician. Now, some of these ten emperors, one after the other, kept persecuting the church, throwing them into lions, arena, so to say, making mockery of them, doing everything. They throw them in fires. They did all things in order to break down what they thought the spirit of the Christians to see if they would yield to emperor worship. And that never happened because these believers knew exactly what they believed. In fact, though, the church continued to be persecuted by the Roman emperors until the edict of Milan in AD 313 issued by Constantine the First and, the, and Augustus Vecinus, that stopped the church from being persecuted by Roman emperors. And of course, that also created another problem. Because once the church seemed to be getting a relief, the church plugged into idolatry because they went in bed with the government. And that is another story. But anyway, that's not my concern for now. Now, this, of course, does not really mean that the church has stopped being persecuted. In modern times, various governments had, con- had and continued to persecute the church. The 20th century was a time of great persecution of the church that many people are unaware. Now, take for example, in June of 1900, there were looting and burning of churches and homes of missionaries and Chinese Christians 
throughout the cities of North China by a frantic or frantic and fanatic group known as boxers. They did a lot to make Christians' life miserable. In Japan, prior to the event of Pearl Harbor, there was a change in October 1941 by what's known as the Shinto government that led to the persecution of missionaries in Japan, resulting in imprisonment and great suffering for Christians in Japan. The former Soviet Union persecuted the church so that many Christians in Russia, Romania, and other Eastern European countries were jailed and killed. Today, the Muslim controlled countries continue to persecute the church of Christ in that the local churches are routinely burned down and Christians are killed in great number, although many in the West have no idea of the extent of the sufferings of Christians in these Muslim-controlled countries. So the point is that the church continues to suffer persecution in keeping with the first part of the first proposition that we're considering. That is, the enemy of the church may come after her with all their might. Now this should really not surprise us if we understand that the enemy of God's people are always poised to persecute or destroy them. Egypt was certainly an enemy of the covenant people of God at that time, at the time of Exodus. That is the reason they came against them, following them into the middle of the Red Sea, attempting, of course, to use the same dry ground that the Lord had provided Israel to cross the Red Sea. Now, the application of this fact, as we have uh, stated in the proposition we are considering, is that the Church of Christ should not be surprised that she undergoes persecution. The Lord of the church clearly taught that believers will be persecuted because of him in Matthew chapter 24 verse 9. Matthew chapter 24 verse 9. It reads, Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death and you will be hated by all nations because of me. And the Holy Spirit, through Apostle Paul, conveys the same truth that the church of Christ, all believers that constitute the church, will certainly suffer persecution as we read in Second Timothy chapter 3 verse 12. Second Timothy, chapter 3, verse 12. It reads, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not maybe. It's a guarantee. If you live according to truth, you can guarantee you, uh, yourself that you are going to be persecuted. People do not want that. And so, people are going to ridicule you if you want to live according to the truth. Persecution is therefore unavoidable for believers. The implication is that the church of Christ should not compromise God's truth as we find today because of fear of persecution. Of course, God has not left us without protection which is expressed in the second part of the first proposition that we are considering and it is with this second uh, with this gospel vision for the church that we will consider in our next study as we complete our study of the first proposition of Exodus chapter 14 verses 23 through 25 that we are considering. Anyhow, let me remind you of the message of this section of Exodus chapter 14 that we are considering. It is that the church of Christ should not be afraid of the activities of her enemies because God will fight for her in such a way that her enemies may recognize it. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the study of your word. We pray that God the Holy Spirit will challenge us to know that yes, if 
will follow the truth, that we will be persecuted. But that at the same time, you will fight for us. This is our request in Christ's name. Amen.